Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 10, Episode 11, The Imjin War, Part 1, A Storm from the East. The next four episodes, starting with this one, will center around the Japanese invasions of Korea, which began in 1592. Back when I was outlining this series, I thought I would be able to cover this incident in one episode, possibly two. As I proceeded with research, however, this fairly significant international incident ended up ballooning to four episodes. The event is so often summarized or otherwise abridged in general Japanese history that I felt the need to expand upon it. Its ripples would be felt for decades, and in some ways, its ghost continues to haunt East Asia to this day. In this episode, we will set the stage and discuss the earliest stages of the invasion. We will begin in China in the 1580s, where the Ming Dynasty had been ruling for over 200 years. The Ming government had enjoyed its share of triumphs and mistakes during those preceding two centuries, and in 1582, Grand Secretary Zhang Chujang died after instituting widespread financial reforms. With his death, the talented general Qi Jiguang, famous for repelling incursions from coastal pirates, was removed from his post in the Ming army. He died in 1588, impoverished and alone. This was especially unfortunate because the Ming dynasty would soon need talented leaders to direct its army. One of the late Grand Secretary's most lasting contributions to the Ming government's financial health was a policy referred to as the Single Whip Reform. Tax in Ming China before the new policy's promulgation in 1580 was primarily collected in the form of rice. Over time, the various regions and principalities which made up the Ming domain became increasingly complex in their practices of tax collection, often employing more tax collectors than were necessary, which made tax collection far less profitable. Under the single whip reform, taxation nationwide would be simplified and rice no longer used as the medium of exchange. Taxpayers were now obliged to pay in silver coin instead. While this reform did allow the state to reduce its payroll expenses and expand the tax base, the universal shift to silver payment seems to have been, in hindsight, a mistake. At the time, silver coins had become all the rage among the merchant class, as the Ming dynasty had previously used copper coins which were, in times of emergency, debased and had thus diminished in value. Silver was in demand, its value was climbing, so it made sense at the time to use it as the new tax medium. Unfortunately, part of the reason why silver was so valuable was because it was rare. Relying on it for taxes meant that taxpayers who normally offered rice would have to trade for silver coins, which in the short term did generate some increased economic activity. In the long term, however, silver became the number one import which Ming China brought in from foreign merchants, especially Europeans. This reform worked fairly well for urban citizens, especially those who lived in port cities popular with merchants. However, the rural population, especially in landlocked inland provinces which did not receive regular visits from traveling merchants, had a much more difficult time getting their hands on silver coins. Combined with the fact that some of these provinces were largely populated by ethnic groups which resented Han hegemony, and you have a recipe for some eventual unpleasantness. 
None of these eventual problems were evident in the moment, however, and for a time the Ming government enjoyed an increase in the overall tax collection, and at least fiscally, the government was fine. After Zhang Chuzhong's death, however, the ministers who filled his shoes were frequently corrupt and indifferent. The first decade of Emperor Wanli's reign was relatively peaceful and prosperous, so much so that it is often referred to as the Wanli Restoration. In spite of the corruption in his government, after Zhang Zhujiang died in 1582, the emperor enthusiastically took charge of the state directly. For the next ten years, the Ming dynasty was buoyed largely by the emperor's efforts at continuing the reforms set in place by the late Zhang Zhujiang. His efforts were stymied somewhat by his ministers, who seemed more interested in endless debates about the particulars of Neo-Confucian ideals than in actual governance. They pestered the emperor so much with their obtuseness that he hired a small army of eunuch caretakers to govern on his behalf as he gradually became less and less interested in trying to steer the ever-wobbly ship of state. By the 1580s, that ship was starting to show signs of dangerous teetering. In 1589, in the southern province of Guizhou, armed conflict erupted among various subgroups of the Miao people. The Miao are ethnically distinct from the Han and had been allowed to govern their own lands as kings under the suzerainty and taxation of the Ming Emperor. One of the armed groups was led by a man named Yang Yinglong, whose ambitions grew far greater than simply ruling his fellow Miao in Guizhou province. Other Miao leaders joined with Yang Yinglong, and what began as an isolated provincial conflict quickly grew into a regional rebellion spanning nearby Sichuan and Huguang provinces as well. This would later be called the Bozhou Rebellion. The year 1592 was an especially bad one for the Ming Dynasty. In the midst of a growing rebellion in their south, they faced another rebellion that erupted in the northern province of Ningxia. While the Bozhou Rebellion had the earmarks of an ethnic popular uprising, the Ningxia Rebellion began as a feud between a Ming administrator and a Mongol general who served the Ming dynasty. After a series of escalations, the administrator was assassinated in March of 1592 by a Han officer who sided with the Mongol general. The regional army followed suit, seizing 47 nearby fortresses and demanding that the emperor acknowledge their independence. As an ultimatum, they threatened to invite a faction of Mongols known as the Ordos to support them if the Ming Emperor refused. In May of that same year, the armies of Toyotomi Hideyoshi invaded Korea. The Choson dynasty begged for the Ming's support, and Emperor Wanli stumbled upon a possibly brilliant solution. His representatives approached the Miao army supporting the Bozhou Rebellion in the south and offered them full amnesty for their actions, if they assisted in suppressing the Ningxia Rebellion and expelling the Japanese from Korea. Yang Yinglong, the leader of the Bozhou army, agreed. In Korea, King Sanjo ascended the throne of Joseon in 1567, and his reign brought an end to the decades-long destructive infighting between the Neo-Confucianist Sarim and the conservative Hungu factions that dominated Korean government. The Sarim scholars had been largely exiled from national politics and had contented themselves with assisting governance at the provincial level, often in far-flung corners of the kingdom. 
King Sanjo was extremely enthusiastic about restoring competent, active governance nationwide, and he invited many Sarim scholars to join him at court. In these critical early years of his reign, King Sanjo proved that he was not an armchair Neo-Confucian, throwing himself into reforms such as redesigning the civil service examination so that it tested applicants' knowledge of history and politics rather than just their knowledge of literature. He further denounced the Hongwu and not only removed them from power, but posthumously restored the reputations of the Sarim who were killed in the literati purges decades before. Now that the Sarim Neo-Confucian scholars had an opportunity to reform national government according to their principles, naturally they soon divided into two factions who fought one another for control of the state. The initial matter that split the Sarim in 1574 revolved around the elevation of one Gim Hyo Wan to the position of Ijo Jongrang, an office which was in charge of deciding promotions for other scholar officials. The brother of Queen Insun, himself a Neo-Confucianist scholar, accused Kim Hyo-hwan of frequent bribery, linking him to a former corrupt official who had been removed from office. Nevertheless, Kim Hyo-hwan's appointment to Ijo Jong-rang was approved, and he ascended to the office. The next year, an effort was made by certain officials loyal to the queen to have one of her brothers, not the one who made the accusations, nominated to the office of Ijo Jong-rang. The tricky thing here is that the sitting Ijo Jongrang had the power to name his successor, and Kim Hyo-hwan certainly had no interest in empowering a royal brother. He rejected the nomination, and this action launched a new rivalry which would define Korean politics for the next 200 years. Followers of Kim Hyo-hwan who supported his actions as justified became known as the Easterner faction because Kim Hyo-hwan's house was in the eastern quarter of the capital. Naturally, the opposing group became known as the Westerner faction, and they were led by a scholar official named Shim Wee-gyam, the queen's younger brother whose nomination to Ijo Jong-rang was rejected by Kim Hyo-wan. Digging into the weeds of the different philosophies of these two competing parties is beyond the purpose of this podcast. Broadly, their disagreement gradually took on a philosophical edge as each side wrote treatises and counter-treatises and tried to manipulate the king into giving them power to punish their rivals. The Westerner faction, being partly composed of Queen Insun's relatives, tended toward conservatism while the Easterners were seen as reformers who were sometimes too radical for their own good. While these two factions did gain a lot of influence for their side and attract adherents among the scholar officials who saw factional membership as a means of gaining power, there were plenty of other scholar officials who tried to maintain neutrality and keep the ship of state on an even keel. One of these was Yi Yi, who was considered the academic successor to Zhou Guangzhou, a martyred Sarim scholar official whom we discussed last season. Yi Yi tended toward conservatism, but was known to keep himself above the messy political fray. He spent his childhood studying Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism, but it was Confucianism which eventually gained his active support. He had served in a variety of government offices and even traveled to Ming Dynasty China on an official diplomatic mission in 1568. He wrote extensively and by the mid-1570s had become a trusted advisor to King Sanjo. In 1576, he despaired at the divided condition of the Joseon government and returned to his hometown where he stayed for several years. 
1580, he returned to the capital and attempted once more to make lasting peace between the feuding factions. He may have been more successful if King Sanjo had given him more support, but the sovereign was by this point exhausted by the endless bickering and had become indifferent and cynical. In particular, Yi Yi advocated for the Kingdom of Joseon to rebuild its military, which had become undisciplined, outdated, and undermanned. He feared that such weakness would invite invasions from the Jurchens in the north, or worse, the Japanese to their east. His advocacy in this department was, unfortunately for the future of Joseon, ignored at best, openly mocked at worst. Korea had, at this point, largely enjoyed peace with their neighbors for many years, and its government had become focused instead on its internal factional strife. Yi Yi died in 1584, long before the threats he foresaw would come to pass. Because both Japan and later the Jurchens invaded the peninsula, his posthumous reputation was rightly elevated to a prescient, practical scholar official. Shortly after Yi Yi's death, the Easterner faction saw an opportunity to seize power. They wrote treatises accusing the Westerner leaders who were serving in office of corruption and tyranny. The Westerners were dismissed and their offices filled with Easterners. They also actively purged neutral scholars from the rolls, especially those connected to Yi Yi. One such scholar official was a man named Zhang Yalrip, whom King Sanjo personally disliked. The sovereign happily agreed to the idea of exiling Zhang Yaorip to Jeonju Island in the south. However, Zhang Yaorip organized the slaves who lived on Jeonju into a fighting force, and they succeeded in many battles with pirate bands who plagued the local waters. In 1589, the Westerner faction conceived of a way they might regain power. They hated Zhang Yaorip more than the Easterners, and convinced King Sanjo that he was a dangerous rebel who wanted to make himself the king. The official account of what happened next is that Zhang Yaorip was summoned to appear before the king, but fled and later committed suicide. Some scholars believe, however, that he was murdered by Westerner partisans and the death made to look like a suicide. Assassination is a legitimate possibility considering how quickly the Westerners used this incident to their advantage. Playing on King Sanjo's paranoia, they convinced him to put them back in charge so that they could investigate anyone who may have had a hand in the late Zhang Yaorip's rebellion. Most of the dead scholar officials' associates were Easterners, so it was easy to target them in 1589 and assert themselves once more into the helm of state. Purges ensued, which included death sentences, exiles, and imprisonment for their rivals. It was, however, a short-lived victory. In 1590, the Easterners managed to wrest power away from their Western rivals, and purges commenced once more, this time in the opposite direction. Amid this destructive and bitter political infighting, a crisis was brewing just offshore. By the mid-1580s, King Sanjo was receiving regular correspondence from Toyo Tomihide Yosh, the new leader of a unified Japan. These letters contained the usual customary politeness and protocol, but Hideyoshi made no secret of his intent to conquer Ming China. He made demands for tribute, something which would be inappropriate for the Korean kingdom to comply with since they were in a tributary relationship with the Ming dynasty. King Sanjo did send some gifts, but these were meant to be tokens of friendship, not gifts of tribute. The series of letters sent back and forth between the Korean sovereign and the acting leader of feudal Japan reveal a deep misunderstanding and complete failure to read the situation on the part of the Choson state. 
Toyotomi Hideyoshi reportedly requested safe passage for his armies through the Korean Peninsula so that they might stage an invasion of Ming Dynasty China, and King Sanjo continually refused. As Hideyoshi's requests gradually adopted a more threatening tone, the king took the matter to his advisors and asked whether they should raise an army to defend the realm, just in case. Time and again, the Easterner faction partisans advising the king assured him that Toyotomi Hideyoshi was bluffing. At one point, a delegation was sent by the Choson kingdom to Toyotomi Hideyoshi's court. The two primary courtiers of this delegation were from the Westerner and Easterner factions, respectively. While this arrangement may have satisfied the king that surely he would get a full account by sending two members of rival parties, I would contend that this was a mistake. When they returned, the Easterner claimed that the Westerner's pockets were full of money from all the bribes he took in Japan, while the Easterner himself refused to accept any such gifts. It's not a coincidence how many times accusations of bribery and corruption have come up in medieval Korean politics. The Neo-Confucian scholars held that personal character was of paramount importance, and that government must always be free of the appearance and reality of corruption. Thus it became a useful smear to accuse one's opponents of taking or giving bribes. Important decisions often hinged on whether or not such accusations were believed. The stakes in this particular incident could not be higher. The Easterners had been assuring the king that Toyotomi Hideyoshi was bluffing and would not really stage an invasion of the peninsula. The Westerners had not taken a position as such, but their member who returned from Hideyoshi's court was extremely worried about the organization, competency, and discipline of the Japanese military compared with Chosan's own minimalist defense force. Unfortunately, the king believed the allegations that this man had been heavily bribed to try and help Hideyoshi intimidate him, and likewise believed the Easterner delegate who said that Hideyoshi was nothing more than a cowardly rat. In May of 1592, Japanese invasion would no longer be a question. The vanguard arrived in Busan on the southeastern tip of the Korean peninsula on May 23rd. They presented a letter to the city's garrison, which was perhaps 600 actual soldiers, demanding to be allowed to pass through the city so that they might invade China. The commander in charge of Pusan was a man named Chong Bai, who refused the demand and pledged that it was his duty to defend the city from the Japanese unless he received contrary orders from the capital. On the morning of May 24th, after the initial force of 16,000 was disembarked and properly deployed, an assault on Busan began in earnest. The defenders were outnumbered and quite literally outgunned. While the Korean navy was especially powerful in their mastery of rather advanced cannonry, the land army of Chosan was accustomed to using bows, spears, and swords rather than gunpowder weaponry. Nevertheless, the defenders managed to repulse the initial assault waves that attacked the south gate and forced the Japanese to attempt to take the north gate instead. To the north of the city was also a series of nearby mountains which allowed Japanese arquebusiers to fire into the city from high ground. The defenders were gradually whittled down from a distance, and eventually they had used up their supply of arrows and had no way to execute ranged attacks. General Chongbai himself was struck by a bullet and killed, which caused panic to erupt in the city as seizure seemed to be imminent. Taking advantage of the disorder, Japanese warriors scaled the walls at a place that was undefended, and soon streamed into the city, killing not only the Korean defenders, but turning their swords also against the civilian population. 
According to Japanese sources, 8,500 Koreans were killed in the siege of Busan, and 200 were taken prisoner. Watching from a safe distance, a Korean naval commander with 100 ships in his fleet ordered them to be scuttled so that the Japanese invaders could not capture them and use them. He fled back to the safety of Hansong, which is today known as Seoul. I could not find a good reason for this seemingly cowardly action, but it could be that while the Korean Navy's ships were extremely superior to the vessels bearing the Japanese, they may not have had enough manpower to actually use them effectively against the invaders. It also bears mentioning that this particular admiral had only recently been installed and was previously a cavalry commander with no previous naval experience whatsoever. The loss of Busan was a great tragedy for the Choson dynasty, the first of many. The loss of life was terrible, but the foothold now controlled by the invading Japanese allowed them to land further troops and organize a massive invasion force with relative ease. Over the course of the invasion, 200,000 Japanese warriors would join the effort to subjugate the Choson Kingdom and eventually attempt to invade Ming China. The ensuing land battles largely favored the Japanese over the next several years and resulted in similarly high Korean casualties and minimal loss for the Japanese. The leaders of the Japanese troops pushed northward, toward the objective of Hansong and other major cities in the peninsula's interior. They advanced rapidly at some times, no doubt inspired in part by Hideyoshi's own tactics of forced march to gain the element of surprise. The Chosan land army that met them was mostly conscripted peasants with little training, who generally broke at the first charge of samurai. In early June, just a few weeks after the seizure of Busan, a Japanese force overcame a similarly sized Korean force at Chungju. Both sides had between 16 and 20,000 troops, but the Korean commander decided to march out and meet the incoming Japanese force and fight them upon a plane, where he believed his cavalry would have a significant advantage. However, the Han River was to the army's rear, which effectively made an organized retreat impossible in case of defeat. Any advantage conferred to the cavalry was nullified by the presence of arquebusiers, who fired repeated volleys into the horsemen and foot soldiers from behind Pavie's standing shields, and annihilated the defenders while losing only 150 of their own number. Many defenders drowned trying to ford the Han River and escape the carnage of the battle. With the devastating loss at Chengju, King Sanjo ordered that his family and the court should be evacuated from Hansong as soon as possible. Word of this withdrawal spread quickly throughout the city, which caused panicked riots to erupt as news of an advancing Japanese army likewise began to spread. A few days after the departure of the royal family and their governmental retinue, the Japanese army forded the Han River and seized Hansong, the capital of the Choson Kingdom, with almost no resistance. This retreat from Hansong was not the only time the royal family would need to relocate. Their temporary refuge, the major city of Pyongyang, would be taken in late July amid further devastating defeats of the Korean land army. It wasn't until early August that the Ming Dynasty would finally send the long-awaited affirmation to King Sanjo that they would indeed begin sending troops as soon as possible to help retake the peninsula. The rapid advance and early successes of the Japanese armies in Korea certainly look impressive on paper. However, there were a few signs that they had perhaps gotten in over their heads. The Korean Navy, whose command structure we will discuss further in the next episode, 
managed to score a victory when they came upon a fleet of Japanese ships anchored at the port town of Okpo. The warriors on board those ships were busying themselves with plunder, murder, and rape in the town, and the chaos of this raid masked the approach of the Korean fleet, whose commanders saw what was happening and acted quickly out of anger. They encircled the anchored fleet and then subjected the Japanese ships to bombardment with their heavy cannons. The Japanese raiders scrambled to their ships and attempted to return fire with their arquebuses, only to find that the thick-hulled Korean ships were sturdy enough to endure such small-arms fire. Twenty-six of the Japanese ships were sunk, many dragging their occupants to a watery grave, while the remaining twenty-four slinked away after taking heavy damage. The Battle of Okpo would be the first of many Korean naval victories in this war, and the commanders of these ships who would win said victories would later be praised as national heroes. Next time, we will explore the lives of the Korean naval commanders in greater detail, as well as examine the invasion from the contemporary Japanese perspective of the Imjin War. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.